Principle two, fight for purpose, not for power. Private planes. I got a call from my friend James a few years ago. You're a Denver Broncos fan, right? He asked immediately, not even answering my hello. There's a Broncos player who wants to meet you and have dinner with you. Are you free anytime soon? I have a rule about taking meetings on the spot like that. I say no unless there's a reason for the meeting that's compelling enough to carve out the time. It's a cardinal rule of mine, and I never break it. But the moral of this story is that you should never say never because I said yes to this meeting without even thinking. I guess a dinner date with a future Hall of Fame football player who also happened to play for my beloved Denver Broncos was my deal breaker. Within a few days, I was on my way to Denver in a private plane. I'd always dreamed of flying on private planes. I would look at them from a distance as I slept through the commercial terminal at airports, wondering what the insides looked like, smelled like, and felt like. Now that I had arrived, I knew exactly what it felt like, and though it was not quite beyond my wildest dreams, it was exactly what I wanted. We should have clear sailing from here on out, the pilot said, breaking my train of thought. I'll let you know if that changes. I nodded back at him and smiled. A private plane is better than the second house or the third supercar. It's the ultimate decadence because of the freedom it provides. Sometimes, when you know the captain well, they let you sit in the right seat, the one beside them in the cockpit. You put on the headphones and listen to the chatter of the skies between the various pilots and air traffic controllers. Scanning the instrument panel full of gauges and maps might be confusing at first glance, but the captain will often patiently answer all of your questions. He or she might even allow you to take control of the yoke and move the plane from side to side ever so gently, as if you're holding a brand new baby in your arms. Having flown hundreds of hours in private planes, I can tell you that the real benefit of flying private comes in the currency of time. A private plane is magical because it is a time machine. Instead of going to the major airport, you choose the one that happens to be closest to your house. Instead of going to the parking garage and hoping that you find a space, you pull up to the security gate, push the button on the intercom, announce your name and the tail number of the plane you are flying on, and watch the gate open while you drive through. Instead of waiting in line at security, taking off your shoes and removing all liquids over 3.4 ounces from your bag, you pop your trunk, an attendant comes around to usher your bags onto the plane. The pilots in their crisp white shirts open your door and shake your hand to welcome you. Instead of rushing through the airport and searching for a coffee line without 25 people in it, the flight attendant hands you your almond milk cappuccino and helps you settle in with that day's copy of the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal. Instead of watching 160 other passengers board the plane, bump your shoulder as they make their way down the aisle to their seat and fight over the last remaining baggage spot, the captain informs you that there was a report of a little bit of chop north of Amarillo, so they're going to increase the elevation to a little higher and a little further south. The good news? That should hopefully give you a great view of Palo Duro Canyon, the second largest canyon in the United States on this beautiful summer morning. And instead of fighting for your bag in the overhead compartment and being bum-rushed by other passengers headed for the exit door when you land, you are handed your sport coat, freshened up by the flight attendant, and wished a great day. We'll be waiting for you when you get back. Good luck in your meeting, the crew says. Stepping outside and onto the tarmac at the small airport, you spot the driver of the car that was reserved for you and hand him your bag. What brings you to town, Mr. Kennedy? The driver will ask as you settle into the back of his new BMW 7 Series. A symbol of power. There is no greater symbol of power than the private plane. Every time I stepped aboard one, I truly felt untouchable. I thought I had done it. I thought I had crossed the chasm and had made it. 
and each flight seemed to be proof of that. After arriving in Denver on this particular trip, I entered the dining room and saw the man whom I'd seen play football on TV so many times. He was smaller than I had imagined. His jewelry, however, was as impressive as I thought it might be, signaling the eight-figure contract he had just signed. The small talk was anything but usual as we discussed the ups and downs of playing in the NFL, particularly in Denver. Apparently, the downside was that the nightlife left something to be desired for NFL players. So one of his teammates had built a club in the basement of his house where the team would go to blow off steam. The upside, as I learned that night, was that the altitude of 5,280 feet above sea level had a way of exhausting and demoralizing visiting teams, particularly in the fourth quarter. Do you ever trash talk the other team, I asked, laughing at his impression of the other teams practically limping up and down the field? Man, we can hardly breathe either, he chuckled. I peppered him with questions, not staying nearly as cool as I would have liked to, but also not wanting to miss this opportunity to ask him what was on my mind. We started with cocktails and then transitioned to silver oak wine. Then the steaks arrived. The restaurant wasn't busy on this Tuesday night, but our table was the center of attention. Throughout our meal, my dinner companion kept referencing PJs. For a good hour, he would say things like, I remember my first time in a PJ. It was so cool. Or, PJs are the best. You can leave practice and be gone 20 minutes later. I wondered why he wanted to talk about pajamas, the only reference to PJs that I was familiar with at the time. Finally, when a break came in the middle of the conversation, I had a little liquid courage in my bloodstream. I spoke up. Excuse me, but why do you keep referencing pajamas? I'm, uh, I'm a little lost. <laughs> Man, what are you talking about? He responded. You keep referencing PJs. What are you referring to if not pajamas? I said. You are hilarious, he cackled to himself, practically falling off his chair. I laughed a little too, feeling only slightly self-conscious. I'm talking about private jets. More cackling. He looked like he was convulsing he was laughing so hard. And just when I thought the laughter might slow down, it picked right back up again. He was right about one thing. The PJ industry had a completely different prestige than any other industry I'd ever been involved in. And if I'm being honest, I liked it. It was the status symbol recognized around the world. If you were rich, if you were famous, if you had really and truly made it, then the private plane showed it. It showed your power. As dinner wrapped up, my new friend offered to let me use his suite at the stadium whenever I wanted, and I secured tickets to the Tom Brady versus Peyton Manning game that was coming up in a few weeks. We said our goodbyes, and in the back of the car on the way to the airport, I texted the pilot that we'd be there in 15 minutes. He replied to let me know that they'd be ready, wheels up, as they say, five minutes after we arrived. I was whisked through the security gates and onto the plane, settling into the same seat I'd occupied hours earlier, barely sitting down before I was handed an Angel's Envy Rye Manhattan for the flight home. I opened my phone and fired up my hot tub so that it would be the perfect temperature when I arrived home an hour and a half later. Looking into the dark sky, it dawned on me that the business we had created— an airline of private planes was something that even professional athletes were impressed with and wanted to be associated with. What made our airline unique was that we didn't have passengers. We had members. Passengers suggest a transaction, whereas members create a relationship. And those members paid a monthly subscription fee for unlimited scheduled flights that they got to share with other members, actual people you wanted to talk to on a flight because they were the movers and shakers of the community. And all of these flights happened on private planes, the kind you see celebrities flying on. And because we use those planes, we also use private terminals. It was a game-changing experience for our members, the majority of whom had never been in a private plane. And because the plane was shared, the cost was much more affordable than flying by yourself. 
We even had a few members that owned their own planes that chose to fly with us occasionally. Even for a dreamer like me, conceiving and launching an airline was reaching beyond even my wildest fantasies. Yet as I sat in the seat on my way home, I felt like I had arrived. I had power, or at least I thought I did. And deep down, isn't that what every entrepreneur is seeking when they start? Or is it something deeper than that? I think this quest for power felt all the more real to me because of where I'd been before I ever sat inside the plush seat of a private plane. I'd seen what I thought was the opposite of power and prestige, and I didn't want to find myself there ever again. Prison Visiting Rooms Make sure you take out all of your change, keys, and metal objects from your pockets and put them through the metal detectors. As I stepped through the metal detectors, the high-pitched alarm went off. I told you to empty your pockets, chastised the authority figure on the other side. From the sound of his voice, the prison guard wanted to be in prison about as much as I did. Yet here we both were, him doing his job and me visiting my father. The year before this visit, I had turned 16 and I was the first in line to take my driver's test on a chilly morning in San Diego. In one final act of normalcy, my father drove me to the Department of Motor Vehicles and signed me in for the test. An hour later, I walked out of the office with my license and a new lease on life. I did not know it then, but my childhood had effectively ended. I was about to face a life disruption of epic proportions. Within a few months, my father would go on trial in Colorado, be convicted of several white-collar crimes, and be sentenced to 20 years in federal prison. This process took the better part of my 16th year on this earth, but it felt like it happened in a matter of seconds. Sometimes life is too much to handle, and ignoring all the signs or stuffing them deep down inside is the easiest reaction in the moment. Human resilience is one of the most powerful tools we have, but it costs us dearly until we force ourselves to take a full account of its effects on us. Much to my detriment, it took me several decades to do so. This particular visit to my father was one of the first times I had seen him in prison. I wasn't there with my family. I was with my friend Mark. Earlier that year, Mark had moved to Illinois from San Diego to live with his father. When that plan didn't work out and he decided to move back to California, I begged my parents to let me drive with him, promising I'd stop in Denver to see my dad on the way. To this day, I still do not know why they agreed to allow two 16-year-old kids to drive 2,000 miles across the United States. But trauma does that to you. It makes you numb to reality. When we arrived at the prison, I went inside while Mark waited in the truck. Having completed the forms and passed through the metal detector, I waited for my dad to enter the visiting room. When he did, he looked like a shell of the man who was once my hero. His fake smile did not conceal the consternation of his mind. His skin was pale, his hair disheveled, and he wore an ill-fitting prison jumper and black shoes. There's nothing to prepare a child for seeing their parent in prison. I remember it feeling like a swift kick to the stomach. I was sick. I couldn't speak. I hurt in a place somewhere deep inside myself. We hugged, and I was comforted by the fact that his musk was still familiar, but that was all I recognized. The lion that was my father had been replaced by an injured lamb. Looking back at that moment, I can't imagine the trauma my father was experiencing. He protected me from all the stories of what life was really like in there. There were things I wanted to know but was afraid to ask. Was it like the stuff TV dramas were made of? Or was it worse? I decided I could live without knowing the truth, so I never asked. The conversation meandered awkwardly during that visit. We were like two strangers forced to talk to one another. 
We filled the space with sentences that began without knowing how they would end. We relied on small talk to take up our time. If a private plane is the symbol of power, this was the exact opposite. Freedom was restricted, luxury constrained, and respect non-existent. The only thought you think in that prison visiting room is how to end that nightmare. I didn't know it at the time, but my affinity for private planes was born in that prison waiting room. What I really wanted as I sat there talking to my dad was freedom. I wanted the freedom to go where I wanted, when I wanted, without constraint, both literally and metaphorically. A prison of our own making. There's no doubt that at the age of 40, I'd attained the success I had dreamed of and then some. The airline we started, we named it Rise. It was meant to be a play on the analogy of the plane taking off, but it also represented what we were helping our members do in their lives. Rise. Rise above their circumstances. Rise to the level of success they dreamed of. Rise to the occasion. Rise to power. That's what most entrepreneurs are after, right? Money, success, or power? PJs? Even if that isn't the goal of the start of this journey, it certainly becomes one along the way. And let me just stop and say this. None of those things are bad. Gaining wealth, growing in power, looking for more success, those are all well and good. The problem comes when those become your identity because then we lose sight of what's real. It's so easy to confuse symbols of power with real power. Planes, cars, hot tubs, and dinners with NFL superstars are symbols. They're illusions we chase in the pursuit of power. I was blinded by these illusions, these mirages seducing me at every turn. But can I let you in on a little secret? Something I think every good entrepreneur should know? Those outward symbols of power can become prisons of our own making. All of it can come with a cost. Having access to a private plane outwardly means that you've made it. But what is happening on the inside? What have you gone through mentally? physically and emotionally to get there? And what do you have to keep going through in order to stay there? You may have, quote, made it, but you'll most likely never be able to stop sprinting on the internal treadmill that never turns off. I have known many people with access to countless symbols of power, but many of these people, including myself, would tell you that although the private plane may look like freedom, we feel trapped, stuck on a never-ending trek to gain more or to keep what we have surrounded by expectations at every turn, wondering who our real friends are and who only wants us for what we can give them. We are pushed forward on a quest for power that creates a prison of our own making. Real power. I don't want you to make the same poor decisions I did. I don't want you to be the kind of entrepreneur who confuses private planes for power. I want you to be the good entrepreneur, the kind who chooses real power. And the good news for you Real power is already at your fingertips. It's already within you. Maybe your circumstances make you believe otherwise. Maybe you're the lowest person in the pecking order in your office. Maybe you're broke and not sure how you're going to finance this dream. Maybe you're a CEO on the verge of a break. Maybe you're a kid visiting your dad in prison. Whoever you are, the truth is this. Your circumstances don't determine your identity. We say that again. Your circumstances do not determine your identity. I thought they did, but that belief almost led to the destruction of my life. As the Irish poet John O'Donohue reminds us, 
your identity is not equivalent to your biography. Your circumstances don't define you unless you let them. You already have everything within you that you need to turn your life from where it is now to somewhere completely different. You have real power right now. Real power comes from knowing what your purpose is. Good entrepreneurs don't ask, what should I do? But rather focus on the most important question, which is how should I be? Not what should I do, but how should I be? A path to purpose. Like most things in life, unlocking your purpose is easier said than done. The path to purpose isn't linear. It looks different for all of us. And it certainly isn't as glamorous as the path to symbolic power might look. But trust me when I tell you the path to purpose, the path of the good entrepreneur, will leave you with more freedom than any private plane will ever offer. Purpose begins with understanding that your life matters. I want to say that again. I see you and your life matters. Sitting in that prison waiting room, I had never felt so dark. Whatever hope I'd had left about what my life might hold for me was squeezed out of me with each minute that I stayed in that room. I was itching to get on the road and out of that nightmare. I rejoined my friend Mark as quickly as I could. We decided to hit the road to Las Vegas on the way home, hoping to find some fun for a couple of 16-year-olds. As we left, the sun was starting to set. It was a cool, crisp fall day in Denver. The clouds were gathering in the mountains, sending a signal to not try to cross them this evening, but we kept driving. Mark opened the cover on top of the truck bed and hopped in the back. He planned to get some sleep there while I navigated the terrain for the night. As I drove us up I-70 towards Vail, snow started to fall heavily from the sky. It was almost dark, and the effect of the snow through the windshield looked like the hyperspace scene from Star Wars. The stars seemed to stretch on until they disappeared. Soon our truck started to struggle to make it up the mountain. The tires were slipping and sliding on the slick four-lane road. It was getting dicey, carving through the canyons of the Rocky Mountains. Out of nowhere, I hit a piece of ice that sent the rear wheels of our truck spinning and sent the truck into a slow-motion circle. I lost control of the vehicle. Nothing I did with the steering wheel had any impact on where we went. Eventually, the truck slammed into the middle divider of the freeway, facing downhill, grating metal on concrete, sending sparks flying and leaving us shaking from head to toe. From the bed of the truck, I could hear Mark cursing, trying to gain his bearings before everything went silent. The truck was now at rest, in the fast lane, facing downhill. I turned the key, but the engine wouldn't turn over. Over and over again, I tried to start the truck, but to no avail. That's when a flash of light caught my eye. It was an 18-wheeler, fully loaded, bearing down on us like a steam locomotive. What if this truck hit the same piece of black ice, spun out of control, and hit our little truck? Truth be told, the irony of our position wasn't lost on me. My dad was in prison. I felt lost, without purpose, and I had thought a few times about committing suicide, not believing I had anything worth living for now that my dad was where he was. Shame and embarrassment hung around my neck like an anchor. I wondered if, in fact, this was the mercy of God on me to take me out on the snowy road with a quick explosion. Maybe this was how I would finally find the peace I had so desperately been looking for. But the strangest thing happened to me in that moment. I realized I didn't want to die. As the truck approached the piece of black ice, now less than 50 feet from our position, it didn't seem to be slowing down the slightest bit. 
The truck driver pulled on his horn and lit up the mountains with a loud cacophony that echoed through the canyon. I closed my eyes, allowing my ears to be my only guide at this point. My hands were wrapped around the steering wheel, knuckles wide under the strain, and my feet pushed full force into the brake pedal as if I could somehow will my way out of this situation. When the truck came within 10 feet, I only had one thought going through my head. It appeared with such dramatic clarity that I knew it was important. I knew it was something I would remember forever. The thought? If I can get out of the situation alive, I can fix everything else in my life. Just like that clarity. And in that clarity, peace. And in that peace, purpose. There was silence again. I opened my eyes to see the truck passing. We were still alive. Still in our truck, still downhill in the middle of a snowstorm. Today was not our day to say goodbye. Instead, it was a day to choose a new path. There on the mountain, in the middle of the road, my mindset had changed. I didn't want to die. I wanted to live. And not just live, but live with purpose. I wanted to make it home to San Diego. I wanted to go to college, get married, and have beautiful babies. I wanted to care. I wanted to live a life that wasn't determined by others' decisions. I wanted to be more than a victim. I want that for you too. Though I hope you find it without the near-death experience. So how do you find your purpose? First, you start by deciding that your life matters, that you have a purpose, that you want to be here, that you want to contribute something of value, that the world needs what you can contribute to it. And you allow that sense of purpose to drive you forward no matter what happens, even when it seems like everything is falling apart, even when the worst happens, even when your dad is in prison, even when you're on the wrong side of a mountain road with a semi-truck barreling towards you, allow yourself to believe that everything is fixable. I know what you're thinking. That's too simple. You don't understand my situation. And I'm sure that sounds that way. But trust me, there's more in later chapters. And in order to get there, we need to start with the end in mind. This next exercise is going to stir up some rumblings inside of you that will begin to whisper your purpose to you. So here's the end of chapter homework. How do you find your purpose? Write your obituary. Although this might seem morbid at first blush, how can we know where we are going if we don't know where we want to end? It can be as long or as short as you want it, but it should include at least three sections. Number one, what will people say about you when you aren't around? Number two, how did you go about creating this life that people speak about? And finally, number three, the other part of your history that makes up who you are. Don't worry about making this perfect. Don't let perfect be the enemy of good. You are the only one who is going to see this for now. Just get some thoughts down on paper. We'll go into more detail on this later in the book, but for now, take time to reflect on the days you have on this earth and what you will do with them. I encourage you to look up the obituaries of people whom you respect. And as an example, I've included the obituary that I have created for myself. Here it is. Nick Kennedy was a loving husband, devoted father, and a loyal friend. When he wasn't spending time loving on those he loved, he became the salt and light to many people through his entrepreneurship, writing, and coaching ventures. Nick was never afraid to hear the truth or to tell the truth, and most people left conversations with him changed for the better. He created experiences that led to truth-telling and life change for billionaires, prisoners, and everyone in between. 
His first book, The Good Entrepreneur, this one, go tell your friends about it, became a bestseller and stayed on the list for several decades, helping his readers cultivate lives that matter. He went on to write 10 more books, ranging from poetry to business books focused on connecting the physical, spiritual, and emotional life as one. Prior to his writing career, he was a successful entrepreneur, launching, running, and selling an airline, Rise, which was, quote, his thing before the thing. He was born in Fort Collins, Colorado, and was raised there and in San Diego, California, alongside his older brother, Robbie, and older sister, April, by their parents, Bill and Debbie Kennedy. He received a baseball scholarship to play baseball at Harding University, where he met the love of his life, Angela Shoal Kennedy, the Grammy-winning artist. They lived in Dallas, Texas, Steamboat Springs, Colorado, and the British Virgin Islands, and had three children, Will, a world-renowned psychologist and inventor of the smell recorder, Sam, the lauded artist and chair of the Museum of Modern Art in New York City, and Jane, the first female president of the United States. 